But now let's start with our speaker this week. Um, I'm happy to, um, to have our speaker, John Meenan, here. She has been a diplomat for the last six years, and she's also an international lawyer. Um, this seminar today is also run in conjunction with ELAC, the Oxford Institute of Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict, and this is where her, her background fits in as well. Um, as I said, she's a lawyer in the International Institutions and Security Policy Team of the Legal Directorate of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and during her career at the FCO, um, she has moved between legal and policy roles, and she's recently just returned from spending three years at the UK mission um, to the United Nations in, in New York. And there she was working, she was heading um, um, the end on peacekeeping, conflict prevention, and human rights. She's also teaching at the um, Diplomatic um, Academy, so she has kind of a background <coughs> which combines um, academia with policy and, and legal issues. And today she's going to speak about the responsibility to protect on its 10th anniversary point of collapse our researchers. Please. Um, Annette, thank you so much for that very kind introduction. Um, it's an absolute honour to be here today, and I'm very grateful uh, for the invitation. I studied at Keeble as an undergrad, so I've got many happy memories which paved the streets, as well as some unpleasant ones of various essay crises. Um, so, um, I just want to make clear before I begin that I'm not speaking today in my professional capacity. Um, I'm speaking purely in a personal capacity, and none of my comments should be attributed to or understood as representing the policy positions or otherwise of HMG. So that very legal disclaimer. Um, the topic that I'm going to speak about today is the responsibility to protect, and specifically, I'm going to pose and then seek to answer the question of whether on its 10th anniversary, R2P, as it's commonly known, is at the point of collapse or resurgence. I think it's significant that this year marks not only 10 years since R2P's formal conception and unanimous endorsement by UN member states, but it's also 70 years since the United Nations itself was founded to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. There's not only a real symbolism in these overlapping anniversaries, but I think there's also a political and practical significance due to the entwined goals, challenges and trajectories of the UN as an international organisation and the doctrine of RTP operating or trying to operate and function well within it. A critical shared challenge that they have is the somewhat messy business of trying to translate their noble aspirations into political will and real-world action in order to save lives. So in the course of this lecture, I'm going to try and explore how RTP has transitioned from an intellectual concept and stepped out of the pages of the 2005 outcome document and began interacting with and colliding with UN diplomats, other UN protection agendas, and the geopolitical interests of the permanent five members of the Security Council, who are ultimately responsible as a default position for enforcing the responsibility to protect. Now, broadly, I'm going to divide my talk into three parts. Firstly, I'm going to try and set out in general terms what the responsibility to protect is, where it came from, and what, it, what its nature is. Secondly, 
assessed against these aspirations, I'm going to assess some of its successes and failures. Thirdly, I'm going to situate RTP in its rightful context, in the broader UN and international system, and in the round seek to answer my own question of whether it is indeed now at the point of collapse or resurgence. So what is the responsibility to protect and where did it come from? Well, there's a long and a short version of this. The short version is that RTP emerged directly as a result of the abject failure of the international community to stop the genocides in Rwanda and Srebrenica in the 1990s. In Rwanda, it's estimated that around 800,000 people died over the course of 100 days. The UN Security Council, to this day, and indeed last year when I was still there, still recalls these moral stains on its record. And this led to the Secretary General of the time, Kofi Annan, calling for the need for a new international response to massive interstate human rights violations. So in response to this call, the Canadian government established an international commission on intervention and state sovereignty, ICSS, this was co-chaired by Gareth Evans, the former Australian foreign minister, sometimes known as the intellectual father of RTP. Now, essentially what this report entitled, um, a report of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty did, was to try and make palatable to states who are deeply suspicious of humanitarian intervention or indeed any interference with state sovereignty and to try and reimagine intervention or reconceptualize it so it wasn't the scary sounding intervention but rather something of a moral responsibility to act. So the UN version of responsibility <coughs> to protect directly borrowed this term of responsibility and the concept is built around this moral foundation. The formal birth of the UN concept of RTP was in 2005, when it was unanimously agreed and endorsed by all UN member states in the UN World Summit outcome document and adopted by consensus in a General Assembly resolution. Essentially, this marked RTP's emergence from a concept largely owned by the academic intellectual community into the high-level political arena and diplomatic discourse. So, focusing on what RTP is, essentially it's composed of three pillars. Pillar one is the concept that each state has a responsibility to protect its own populations from four RTP crimes, namely genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. The second pillar of RTP P, entails the notion that the international community should assist in discharging their responsibility is essentially a capacity building pillar. The third pillar of RTP and the most controversial given that it can entail in the last resort uh, military intervention suggests that the international community through the United Nations has the responsibility to use appropriate diplomatic, humanitarian and other means in accordance with the UN Charter to help protect populations from these mass atrocity crimes.
should the state immediately responsible manifestly fail in its responsibility to discharge this obligation? Now, I think it's useful to reflect on the exact wording of R2P and the World Summit document in trying to assess what R2P's exact nature is. This has been the cause of much debate. The parameters of this debate as to what sort of beast is R2P sort of go along a sliding normative scale, with at one end uh, people suggesting perhaps the responsibility to protect or certainly its, its third pillar um, consists of a legal obligation for the Security Council to intervene should the primary state responsible fail to protect its population. So we have legal obligation or potentially <coughs> evolving legal norm at one end. At the other end, RTP has somewhat rudely been dismissed as a mere gimmick or a slogan, having no normative impact at all. I've got two main reflections about this approach. Firstly, the responsibility to protect in terms of its third pillar, it's not a legal obligation. And I'm not actually sure that its value lies in it emerging as such. The responsibility to protect didn't change the law. The first pillar reflects existing legal obligations that states owe their populations under international human rights law, international humanitarian law, international criminal law. No one was suggesting before RTP was coined that states could perpetrate mass atrocities or fail to respect the human rights of their own populations. Also, I think it's good and important to note that RTP didn't address unilateral military humanitarian intervention. It only conceived of potential military action through the existing United Nations Security Council. It wasn't an absence of law which prevented the council from taking action to stop the genocides in Rwanda or Srebrenica. It had well-established powers, legal powers, which it could opt to use under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. My second reflection, and it might be a bit controversial for me as an international lawyer to say this, um, is that I think RTP watchers obsess a little bit too much about its exact normative status, as though this is somehow the key to its success in getting relevant decision makers to act. I think these people, um, they proceed on the assumption that if something is considered law, it's more likely to be complied with, or if there is a permissive basis for legal action, then that will happen. But we, we've seen from uh, the case of Rwanda and Trebinitsa, there were legal powers to act, but they weren't, they weren't used. And likewise, I think we can contrast Kosovo, where a number of states in the international community, including those who participated um, in the intervention in Kosovo, they actually didn't think that they had a legal basis for action, but they did have a moral pull. And indeed, the Kosovo Commission, which um, looked at the legal basis or otherwise for action after the event, reached the conclusion, which is not the UK official position, um, that um, the action in Kosovo was not lawful, but it was legitimate. 
And I think that's a really interesting theme in the sphere of international law and international relations, this tension between law and legitimacy and their overlap. So my conclusion here is that I don't think we need to fuss about RTP's um, exact normative nature, and particularly we don't need to focus in on whether it's changing the law. I don't think it is. Rather, I think what RTP was designed to do or the best thing it has to offer us was to provide additional moral and political impetus for the Security Council to use the legal powers it already had to take action. So in short, I see RTP's value lying more as a global governance or international legitimacy norm. And having worked at the UN, I can tell you that diplomats and states, they do care about whether their positions are perceived as legitimate or not. The UN is a forum in which issues are debated and contested in terms of their legitimacy or otherwise. So I think the final brief question is the pragmatic policymaker or diplomats one of does it matter what kind of beast RTP is? And as I've said, I actually don't think it always necessarily does, so long as it generates that necessary sense that something must be done and something is ultimately done to stop mass atrocity crimes and that the intervention is loyal to the objectives it's intended, it is intended to serve. So in addressing the question of RTP's nature, I've already partially answered the question of what RTP was designed to achieve. And I think the best answer is that it's a global governance international legitimacy norm, which is meant to exert influence on relevant decision makers to act. But it would be remiss of me not to point out that some RTP advocates have far higher expectations of RTP. I mentioned just two criteria. I think some RTP advocates hoped that RTP would actually advance policy prescriptions of how the council should act when confronted with RTP cases. And secondly, that this would lead to consistent concrete action by the political beast that is the UN Security Council. In my view, the most wildly divergent views about responsibility to protect life trajectory, this question of whether it's at the point of collapse, failure, or somewhere in between, arises because of these very different starting points and expectations. So moving now to part two um, of my lecture, having regard to these different goals um, for RTP, um, I'm going to see where it lies on the trajectory of potential collapse or resurgence. Let's reflect first on its achievements. I think that readily we can identify two key achievements of RTP as a global governance norm. Firstly, from 2005 to 2015, states have broadly maintained at least a, a formal consensus through their verbal commitment to the responsibility to protect, including states in the global north and the global south, where um, Global South was far more suspicious of RTP as a concept and worried that it would be used as a fig leaf for imperial intervention. RTP would be masquerading um, as something it was not. 
And since 2006, RTP has been referenced and in some form reaffirmed in over 25 UN Security Council resolutions, six presidential statements, as well as General Assembly resolutions. So on that level, it's quite hard to uh, say that RTP is at the point of collapse if states and diplomats keep referencing it in these council and GA texts. Secondly, in terms of what it's achieved, RTP has become firmly institutionalised within the United Nations system. Its normative framework has actually generated a physical one for international decision-making. Jennifer Welsh, the Secretary-General Special Advisor on RTP, very much exists. I watched her on YouTube the other day, um, and hopefully she's not on the point of collapse in any sense. Um, Indeed, responsibility to protect has spawned an entire industry of RTP, NGOs, state focal points, and even a group of friends. And there are also Secretary General annual reports on how to operationalise responsibility to protect and interactive dialogues um, with states expressing their views um, on an annual basis. So essentially, I think this extensive RTP activity demonstrates that RTP remains alive and well as an active part of international political and diplomatic discourse. But then RTP's naysayers may say, say well, that's all very well that RTP is part of UN diplomatic discourse, the diplomatic talking shop. But has it actually led to any action? Has it saved any lives? My argument is that from 2005, responsibility to protect its substance, whether formally labelled as RTP or not, has at least been a factor in generating the political and moral momentum which has led to action in some RTP situations. To take one example from Africa, in 2006, RTP was specifically referenced and name-checked in the preambular paragraph of Resolution 1706, which authorised the deployment of a UN peacekeeping force to Darfur. Furthermore, the Council also um, referred to RTP in the round when it referred the situation in Darfur to the ICC. So arguably, RTP was part of the normative backdrop which was leading to an increased council focus on criminal accountability. But the most often cited um, example of RTP's true test case for RTP was that of Libya, when the Security Council, in the face of atrocities committed and threatened to continue being committed by the Gaddafi regime, authorised a Chapter 7 military intervention. The Libya intervention was heralded by RTP advocates at, at the time as the coming of age of the previously intellectual concept of responsibility to protect. In fact, Gareth Evans described it as a textbook case of the RTP norming, the RTP norm working exactly as it was supposed to. Frankly, with hindsight, this badging of the Libyan intervention as an exercise of RTP was possibly ill-advised. I don't think anyone could have known this. It was possibly, with hindsight, ill-advised because the action in Libya 
became to be associated with allegations of unlawful regime change affected under the cloak of RCP and Security Council Resolution 1973. So, in short, whilst Libya could and was cited as RTP's <coughs> operational high point, it then arguably led to its current operational low point and arguable collapse in Syria. But before moving on to examine the post-Libya legacy, I think we should reflect a bit more on the resolution which was held up as being this first test case of RTP to examine whether it really was. Um, it's notable that this Security Council resolution in the preambular paragraph, it acknowledged that an RTP crime may have been committed and it referred to pillar one, the responsibility of Libyan authorities to protect the Libyan population. But what the resolution didn't say in the preambular part, which is the part where sometimes diplomats put things which can't be agreed as part of the operational part, none of the resolution um, referred to uh, the military intervention as an exercise of the Security Council's responsibility to protect. The third pillar, <coughs> instead, classic Chapter 7 military authorization language was used. So was it a case of RTP or not? Having hypocritically engaged in that analysis, um, I do think that there's a risk of over-obsessing about whether Libya was a true invocational test of RTP uh, at all. After all, there's no authoritative decision-maker who gets to judge whether it really was RTP or not. I think maybe what's more interesting about this resolution is that it wasn't unanimously adopted, and I think this still reflects some of the tensions operating between the global north and south. Notably, it received 10 positive votes in five abstentions from Brazil, China, Germany, India, and Russia. I think it's also highly notable that Brazil, India, Germany are all seeking permanent seats on a reformed security council. And I'm just going to leave that thought hanging there and pick it up later when I might offer some reflections on what this may mean for RTP's future, or certainly its pointy edge. Um, the third pillar. So now moving on to RTP's post-Libya life trajectory. There is a simplistic, superficial analysis which says that essentially post-Libya, the term RTP became so toxic in diplomatic UN circles that it essentially marked RIP RTP. That was the end of it. Um, now, I think we need to be really careful about that narrative because essentially it is one that certain states, including Russia, use to its advantage. Arguably, Russia is using alleged prior abuse of RTP as a fig leaf to shield itself, the Assad regime, and its geopolitical decisions, which mean that it has vetoed attempts to reach a solution in Syria. And these intentions run entirely contrary to basic principles of mankind and its responsibility as a permanent member of the Security Council. 
Furthermore, somewhat cynically, states professing to be wary of RTP and its abuse aren't above flipping the principle on its head to justify spuriously blatant violations of international law. Um, when I was at the Council seeking to negotiate a conflict prevention resolution in August 2014, Russia actually welcomed and strengthened RTP language on conflict prevention and then invoked RTP in Security Council debates as a basis for illegally annexing Crimea. So at the ta same time as they were accusing others of abusing RTP and stating it was essentially dead, they were cynically, arguably abusing it themselves. So I think what we need to do is assess RTP, RTP's post-Libya fate from a broader perspective. And there is a clear counterweight to the RTP-RIP narrative. Essentially, we have seen the council being able to take action in some RTP situations post-Libya. One example is 2013. Um, Following the new state of South Sudan's brutal descent into civil war, the Security Council reinforced the existing peacekeeping mission and reprioritized its mandate towards the protection of civilians. Also in 2014, the Security Council, albeit not without delay, mandated a UN peacekeeping mission in the Central African Republic to protect civilians following the country's descent into ethnic and sectarian violence. <coughs> One commentator has even suggested that CAR might even be a more pure form of RTP intervention, even if it wasn't badged as such. And this is due to the CAR's lack of strategic interest to council members. So possibly, but for RTP and the acknowledgement of the moral stain and shame which flowed from failure to intervene in previous places, which weren't of strategic interest to the Council, we can now see some sort of normative pull where the Security Council perhaps does feel morally obliged to intervene in some places which aren't of strategic interest to him, to them rather, either way. So they have no impetus to block action. But, but for moral or ethical concerns, they have, have no great strategic interest in intervening to try and address the mass atrocity situations. So, um, I'm now going to proceed to um, the third part of my lecture, which is situating RTP and its life trajectory in the broader context of the international system. I've got a few reflections. Firstly, I think that those that say RTP has no pull, it has no life left in it, um, are underestimating the impact that RTP has had in actually delegitimizing the council itself. I think it's helped delegitimize not just individual council blockages for action, but it's also brought into even sharper focus long-standing questions about the Council's current composition, the continuation of the P5's veto power, and Council effectiveness. It's given states within the Council and outside it a moral lexicon to attack and classify lack of Council action.
which I think has played into this broader narrative and this big question that the UN itself faces on its 70th anniversary. Secondly, I think it's interesting to note that RTP occupies a very similar space to other UN protection agendas. There are a number of thematic agendas which occupy the same space at the Security Council. For example, protection of civilians, children in armed conflict, conflict prevention. <coughs> and many of these have the same physical structures replicating the normative ones. And I really think there's actually a risk of them all conceptually collapsing into each other. Now, I'm raising the question as to whether that is problematic or not. Arguably, the continued value of each of these thematic agendas, including RTP, rests on them being well-defined. Uh, by way of illustration of how all these protection agendas are actually competing in the same space, in December 2013, um, UNMIS, the UK, the UN, rather, peacekeeping mission in South Sudan, opened its gates to shelter internally displaced people at risk when ethnic conflict broke out uh, between different tribes. Within the UN system, different thematic constituencies all claimed that act as their own. It was described as um, a case which demonstrated the productivity of rights up front, a new um, council or UN agenda uh, which occupies the same space as RTP. Others said it was a key example of RTP, others that it was classic POC. I mean, in essence, it was just the right and the humane thing to do. So maybe it doesn't matter if there's conceptual collapse between all of these agendas, but maybe it does, because classification can also actually impact on re resource flow, where the money goes within the different UN system and arguably you want to direct it to the most effective. But also, if you want practices such as that to become expected and generalised, maybe you do need to know um, what to call it so that you can call for it and get other constituencies to call for it so that political and moral momentum gathers to make it happen. So my final point, which brings me back um, to the question at the beginning and the situating of RTP within the broader UN system is that I think RTP both encapsulates and also comes up against some of the key wider tensions existing at the UN, its collective security system, international law and geopolitics and the interplay between all of these. Now, on its 70th anniversary, as I say, the UN is coming under increasing scrutiny and pressure. And front and centre of the broader debate as to whether the UN is fit for purpose is whether the Security Council is failing in its primary responsibility, and that's UN Charter language, to maintain international peace and security. And it's shameful, somewhat shameful at times, ineffectiveness in preventing and halting mass atrocity crimes is front and centre of this debate. This is evidenced by the fact that there are three different um, initiatives going around diplomatic and UN circles at the moment, aimed at restraining the use of the veto. In my view, this is a critical piece of evidence which shows that 
rather than being at the point of collapse. I would say RTP is actually on a positive upward trajectory. <coughs> In these initiatives, and there's a French one, there's an ACT one, there's an uh, initiative from the elders which are aimed at constraining the veto, responsibility to protect is specifically mentioned in two of these documents. So again, I would say that arguably this shows that the toxicity the brand of RTP had post-Libya is actually allaying somewhat. And that potentially, should these attempts at constraining the video gather momentum and translate into practice, RTP will have more teeth than it actually did in 2005 when it was initially conceptualised. So I think my conclusion is pretty clear. In very blunt terms, I would say happily that on its 10th anniversary, RTP is not at the point of collapse. It is at the point of resurgence, but obviously the picture is somewhat more complex than this. But in the round, I think it's shown itself to be a relatively robust and resilient substantive norm, even if it has suffered brand damage along the way <coughs> and hit operational rock bottom in Syria. But I think, as I said earlier, I think uh, it's dangerous to blame RTP, a doctrine for geostrategic decisions of the permanent members of the Security Council. Um, that is really to overstate uh, what RTP was intended to do or what it could ever achieve. I'll finish on a final note with one reflection, and that's that whilst this lecture has focused on the hard edge of responsibility to protect um, Pillar 3, I don't want it in any way to be understood um, to constitute me advocating uh, for military intervention um, as a political policy or legal solution um, in every complex case. Indeed, a key component of the Gareth Evans report, which is missing from the UN version of the RTP doctrine, includes a concept of responsibility to rebuild. Now, I think the international community has learned, or indeed learns, forgets, learns again, that military intervention in and of itself can also be irresponsible if it's not properly situated in a broader political process with a coherent and responsible post-intervention plan. And while I don't think we necessarily need to amend the UN's RTP concept to capture this, I really don't think it must be forgotten. So that signifies the end of my lecture. I would be very interested um, in your views and to see whether you reach the same conclusions um, as me. And I think Annette's going to facilitate that discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks for